Welcome to That's What Ni、nee、Said. I'm Ni,、nee, a mother and an entrepreneur. This is my journey to find a footing in life, well, at least try to, and what I have to say about it. Hey, everybody! How was your week? Um, how was mine? Mine was okay. This past week, made some progress. Didn't get a lot done. You know, I always wish I could do more. That's just how I am. But um, it's been all right. Made some progress in terms of making merchandise. And um, a friend that I recently made told me that they were listening to my podcast. I was like, oh, I'm so flattered. Thank you. So I just wanted to say a quick hello before diving back into my chronicles again. And I call it a chronicle. It's not like I'm really going by year by year, but it's just it's really is just a track of my growing up, my experience, and it's a skosh less douchey than calling it my memoir right now at this stage of my life. So let's just go with that. Last time we left it at the first time I had the honor of attending a fat camp. The more I try to recall, the more I try to remember. The location, the surroundings, exactly what, and I came to realize the whole "quote unquote" fat shaming part really was something that I realized after the fact. Because at the time, I actually had fun. I was trying to remember what we did. So basically, that was the first YMCA in my town. I remember the building. It was a building dedicated to the development of minors, community center. I remember there were art classes, calligraphy. Gymnastics, dance, what have you, right? Again, I grew up at a great time. Outside influences was coming in. Obviously, my mom took me to some ballet classes. Did not fucking take. Not that I don't love ballet. I don't love the atmosphere, the judgment. That was part of the combo. I can't remember exactly if that was the first time I had came in contact with hip hop. But I feel like hip hop came into my life a little later. The real shit was when I graduated junior high, so eighth grade, nine, ten, eleventh grade. The summer right before I start high school, I remember the thing that triggered this. We were sitting at home in our apartment. That was the first apartment to have air conditioning in our family, so we were just living it up. Maybe eating some snacks. And we had this huge leather couch, those old timey ones with the really fat armrest. So my dad was sitting in the armchair. I joined him and I sat on the armrest. So I was a little raised, I was a little higher. So when he turned to me, he basically can see my torso and my thigh. And my dad had been away, you know, he's always somewhere business trips, this and that. He just came back. We were just hanging out, and then during a commercial break. Turned towards me because he was talking to me, and he saw the rolls on my torso and my thigh, and he physically jolted a little bit. Like it's, it was very noticeable, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but after that. Apparently, my mom had seen advertising at this miracle camp that helps people lose like forty pounds over the summer. She had been wanting to take me there, but it was quite expensive. She was asking my dad for money, and dad's like, "Ah, she doesn't need it. She's a kid. She's fine." 
But after that incident, my dad was like, this is in my imagination. Basically, pulls out a fast act and gives it to my mom. Like, take this girl and get rid of that meat. So we began our experience. The few things I remember, I mean, it's not like I was physically abused there. So in terms of trauma, this is a pretty low-level trauma. But it is very impactful to the rest of my life as I know it up until this point. So for the first thing they ask you to do, when you enter any kind of weight management facility, they're going to ask you to control your calories. And at this particular camp, the service they provide is instead of actually giving you the information of nutrition and diet, what they ask you to do is to basically, first of all, you need to break your body the habit of overconsumption of food. So the way you do that is by going on a 14-day fast. And it's not like you're just going to starve for 14 days. They allow you a small glass container of, quote, nutritious syrup or liquid. I, I don't know how to really properly translate this. But it's one of those like tiny brown bottles that for like cough syrups or whatever way back in the day that came with those really hard straws. You have to stab through it, that kind of deal. You're allowed one or two of those. I think it was two, one in the morning, one in the evening. And the rest of the day is just water. For the first four days, just syrup, water, syrup, water. After four days, you're allowed to gradually reintroduce food into your body and they start with this powder that you mix with water and becomes this porridge kind of thing it tasted horrible i don't know what it i think it's some kind of vegetarian protein powder if you look at it rationally it's actually quite ahead of its time right because that's that's kind of what people are eating right now in terms of super healthy food but basically you're allowed serum and then for lunch, you're allowed a small bowl, maybe a cup worth of that substance and water and another syrup at night. By week two, beginning of week two, you can have a little bit of vegetables. So for me, I don't know where this came about. It's probably just because they're 90% consistent in the water. When you talk about diet and losing weight or food and vegetables that help you, Cucumbers and fucking tomatoes always just are always people's go-to for like a solid decade and a half or even two decades. If you even start uttering the word diet, the things that people will regurgitate is, oh, you need to eat this. You need to eat cucumbers and tomatoes. So the things that I was allowed to eat to reintroduce food into my system was cucumbers and tomatoes. And you're not, it's not like, oh, eat your fill, but you can only, no, you're allowed one cucumber and one tomato. At the end of the 14 days, you can gradually start to get back on actual food, but it needs to be low on sodium, low on oil and all that kind of stuff. Makes sense, but it was just done extremely harsh without any explanation. And I remember there was one night, I mean, obviously you can imagine I was just extremely miserable the whole two weeks. Because I was at that point a legitimate fat kid. I ate a lot. I drank a lot of soda. I ate a lot of snacks. So to be whipped from that uh, habit to put into this box, it was extremely unpleasant. 
And my mom and dad basically for the whole two weeks had to tiptoe around me because I'm extremely agitated. And whenever it's meal times, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, they basically have to tiptoe out of the house and quietly go eat and make sure their mouth is extremely wiped when they come back. Maybe even gurgle some mouthwash. We didn't have mouthwash at that point yet, so just drink a lot of water or drink a lot of alcohol, some, whatever that covers up that fucking spice and smell of meat in your mouth. And I remember there was one night they were having something and one of the vegetable dish was something that I make every week now. It's basically blanched string beans. French cut it, you blanch it, and then you mix it with the garlic-based Chinese salad dressing. Sounds pretty harmless, right? And I was really hungry. I was really begging my mom to give me, let me have a few of those. And I was clearly before I reached the point where I was allowed food again. So my mom was really adamant about not giving me any of those. And I just felt so mistreated. And I mean, the the level of self-pity was through the roof. I don't think I've ever, up until the point when my dad passed away and people started to show their true colors, that was the first peak of self-pity that I've ever given myself. And I remember going back to my room, basically laying on bed, facing the wall, and then just quietly sobbing because I wasn't allowed to fucking string beans. So diet was horrible and increased exercise was another aspect of it. And another thing I actually really liked, even though it was extremely painful, was they give you this acupuncture-ish like pressure point massage every other day. And and this is, and you know, this one was the legit fat camp was because every time I go there for a weigh-in, for some supervised exercise and for the massage is fat people or fat kid to be specific. Mostly. I don't know. I think it's the way they market it. It was like a summer camp, transformation summer camp kind of thing. So it was just kids around my age, around my weight. And there were quite a few that were even bigger than I was because I remember my mom talking about it. So supervised exercise, a lot of it was climbing up and down the stairs because it doesn't require any equipment, you know. And um, they asked us to do, did they ask us to do sit-ups and that kind of shit? I think they did. I don't remember. I remember climbing the fucking stairs because... When, but, when we lived with the grandparents and our first apartment, we were always on the second floor. So that's barely any walking. And then we moved to the new apartment. It was on the fourth, fifth floor. And we had an elevator. So, you know, no climbing up the stairs for me. That was a big deal. Like having to do the quest of Sisyphus every day at the fat camp. That made a mark on me. That made me hate climbing stairs for a very long time. Oh, and the massages. So if you would imagine, let me paint a visual picture for you. The attendees, us fat kids, we were almost spilling out of the massage table. You know, massage table. Now I feel like the massage tables are getting wider and wider to accommodate the service receivers. But when that item first came into my world, it had always felt to me that it was barely, I could, if I itched my back, I could have just flipped and fallen out of the bed so it's just really funny and then 
the masseuse there, obviously, they're all very hardworking masseuse. And that's giving out massages so demanding physically. There were all these young, cute, petite little girls in their maybe late teens or early 20s. And they're fit as shit because they're all day. They're just like kneading on these fat rolls, right? They're pretty cool people. And then we actually became friends. And, and, <laughs> and at the time, it had seemed like witchcraft to us because we're on a very restricted diet. Every time if we were to have a cheat day or a meal, even if it was the day before or whatever, they could always smell it on us. They would just look at us and then they would start the massage and then maybe 30 seconds later and we just say, what'd you eat last night? <laughs> I was like, what? what? How? I, I brushed my teeth. I took a shower. I just, there's no signs of me having consumed anything. Or maybe I just had a little bit of like a blush, a little flash of color on my cheeks because I'm not starving to death, at least in my head. And, or I don't know. It's just they could always tell. And they would always hold us accountable. You know, if you had a cheat meal, you're going to have to do some extra stair climbing or whatever. I lost, I want to say, 25, 28 pounds, which it's not huge. It's not like one of the contestants on Biggest Loser. But still, it was noticeable and it kind of brought me back to a somewhat normal physique. I was no longer, I'm still not considered pretty. I'm still not nowhere near the kind of skinny that is socially welcomed. But at least I'm normal now. When high school started, the first day, people just barely recognizing you. It's like, whoa, what happened? And all kinds of compliments and this and that. My mom was very pleased with it. And I didn't hate it either because it's human nature. Um, high school, oh man, talk about difference in the quality of education. When I was in junior high, I remember, even though I was extremely bad at math, we had a really good math teacher who was very good at explaining things. But she can only help you so much if you refuse to even get on the track to start thinking, right? And I was kind of the kid who just refused to get on the track. I just didn't, couldn't pay attention. I don't know if, if it's a method of teaching or it's just I'm too visual of a learner or something. Like, I, I don't know. Or I'm, again, I'm self-diagnosed. I think I have ADHD. My Chinese teacher was really, really good. Looking back, I still kept some journals from back in the day. My writing was pretty shit. I remember she had always been really encouraging. She really appreciated that I look at things from different perspectives. I have my personalities. Um, she never tried to squash any of those. And my English teacher was extremely good. And then I think later she became um, the headmaster of that school for the past maybe decade or so. But her pronunciation was extremely good. I learned that because when I went to high school, when I, when I saw this new English teacher, I was like, what the shit? Like, this is not okay. That was ongoing gag in our class. I would draw comics about her and other teachers because they're just so bad. Looking back, I understand why my dad wanted me to stay in that private school. The teachers really were extremely rare, extremely good. Even the physics and chemistry, all the things that I hate, hate, hated because it wasn't explained to me in a way where shows me how useful this is going to be 
how impactful this is going to be to your daily life. It was always just like really dreadful, boring stuff. It's sad to say, it kind of lost that opportunity to further pursue education with those teachers. And then I came to the public school. All right, just some snippets of the teachers that we have. The Chinese teacher. Ah,、oh, this dude. He is your typical. If you just imagine a douchebag that would sit in Starbucks and pretend to write books all day, and wouldn't shut the fuck up about their favorite poet, and then notice it's not plural because they always refer back to one single poet, which I will not name because I don't think I remember. It's like that was his material, his go-to whenever he wants to show off his intelligence. Extremely tunnel visioned. He had no experience outside of the school system. He had no desire to be outside of the school system because he is one of those older generations that consider being an educator better than doing other jobs in society, such as being a merchant, being working in a factory, and things like that. My friends and I, we still, when we talk about this, everybody still remembers the shocking statement that he made to us that made us despise him and ridicule him behind his back. Was that he once said his biggest dream, the biggest goal of his life, was to own a personal vehicle? Okay, at that point, my dad has owned a car for close to a decade now. All of my friends, their family, good or bad, all of my friends, our families have cars. Even though we still take buses and whatever to get everywhere. It's not like we're too good for buses, but we ha- cars is not a big deal. Okay, it's not like his dream is to own a Bentley or something. He's just a vehicle. His teacher's salary cannot afford that, and that is one of his life goals. And once he uttered those words, we just cannot hold any respect for him. Like you, if you see yourself as an artist, if you see yourself as an author, if you see yourself as an educator. How the fuck is that your personal goal? If you have a better word to describe this extremely pathetic and disgusting image, please educate me. I have no words for that. I just remember. I can't. I can't. I'm sorry. So that that was my Chinese teacher. And my math teacher is this young girl. So that dude was old when he started teaching us. I think he was already mid forties. So at that point, he still haven't achieved his dream of owning a personal fucking vehicle. My math teacher, she's much younger. I think she had just graduated. Did she have a post grad or is she just a undergrad? And she studied something has something to do with education. And then she was basically assigned to become our math teacher for freshman sophomore year. And she thought herself way too good for doing this shitty job and dealing with these shitty kids. Not knowing that she actually know nothing about how to educate. Ask her a question. Ask her to explain to you something. The steps and the answers are not already printed out. You know, sometimes teachers have to think creatively. If I explain to a student this way and they can't get it, how else can I explain it? She completely does not possess that capability. She can never create any outside the box thinking or solution. And all in all, just an extremely boring person in terms of her presentation as well. I always fall asleep in her class. I just can't. It's one of those people like they open their mouth thirty seconds, you're out. You just cannot hold your attention. So that's Chinese, math, and English. I already mentioned 
horrendous, horrendous pronunciation. I don't think this lady has ever even listened to a tape of anybody, actual English speaker. And her pronunciation is like the way my mom pronounces. It felt like she would phonetically translate every word into a Chinese word. And then she just read out those Chinese words. And then in terms of grammar and stuff, we actually rehashed a lot of the old shit that I've already learned in junior high. Again, the private school, so much better. We were so ahead of the actual curriculum. So I don't, I actually didn't learn in terms of English. I didn't learn anything from this teacher at all. And I remember there was once this, there was a Australian or is it a Canadian city that one, uh, that became, no, not the city. There was a school in some city in one of those places. I don't remember the details. It became a sister school with our school. So they did like an exchange visit. So we send our delegation to their school. They send theirs to us. Obviously, being a school English teacher, she was requested to be the translator for the team. And man, did she humiliate herself. She can't understand. Granted, if they were either Canadian or Australian, they probably came at her with some really heavy accent. But still, if you have basic comprehension of the language, you will still be able to understand and communicate. She could not. The students had to step in. I stepped in once. Some of my friends helped as well. And it was just, a, it's just so completely embarrassing for her. I, but I think she still taught there. I think she still, you know, got to get that pension. And speaking of English teachers, I think part of the reason I was so susceptible to American culture or to the Western culture and may or may not have picked up English as a second language a little faster than my friends or my peers at the time was because, first of all, I started learning the alphabet from first grade, which a lot of kids just didn't really have that opportunity and started really understanding there is this different language and then hearing the sound of it. Even my mom, who does not speak English at all, I remember at least she tried to teach me how to say goodnight when I was, when we were in our first apartment. So that was before I even started first grade. It was an extremely embarrassing pronunciation of goodnight, but that was the best she could do. And then she was trying to teach it to me. That was a very early exposure. And I remember when I was in junior high, we have this family friend who is a playwright and an author. And he speaks great English. I don't have clear memories of whether he studied abroad, whether he traveled a lot. But, you know, it would be all the more impressive if he didn't do those things. But I think he did. I just don't remember them. And again, going to paint you a picture. And you walk into his tiny one-bedroom apartment, the smell and the sight just tells you this person is a literary person. The home is filled with the smell of books and cigarettes and a little bit of head oil. I had to say he's not very hygienic. And nobody, no man was in the 90s in China. Very rarely. I think my grandfather might have been the only person who proactively wanted to take showers. Books were stacked everywhere. There is a very narrow, it's like a hoarder's kind of situation. You could barely navigate through. And he had a computer at the end of that path, which was like, it just, it, it was like Lord of the Rings. Like you have to adventure through this path if you want to get to that computer. That's how I felt. It was because computers are so magical and rare at the same time. And he, and in this tiny little room, 
It's half filled with books. The other half is filled with stacks on stacks of DVDs of you know Western movies. I think he was my aunt, my mom's sis- younger sister. They were good friends for a long time. I think they were involved romantically for a period of time. But at that time, they were still just very good friends. And then you know. My aunt, she's very free spirited. She loves to travel. She loves to make friends, meet new characters, and this is the perfect bait, perfect trap for that kind of personality. You know, he's he's free, he's cultured, he is very, very fucking funny, like very dark humor, very funny. Basically, my aunt was like, "Oh yeah, this guy, his English is really good. So if you are interested, if you want to improve your English." Why don't you just go and then he will teach you? And basically, because we were so ahead of the game when I was in junior high, I basically just picked up the subsequent books that my high school teachers were incapable of teaching. I took it to him, and he, we just kind of picked it up from there. So I started going to see him again. Lucky for me, things could have gone wrong so many different ways. I was that is. If you are a predator, that is the perfect setup for you to prey on some young child. But lucky for me, I did. I was not preyed upon, and in a very important part of a life-transforming experience, because through him, I've watched so many movies that's not rated. <laughs> I rented whatever he was watching, you know, from him. So many old movies that no one else had seen because it was not in theaters, and music and just conversation and experience. So he was basically my private English tutor for maybe a year or so, and then I just go and meet him either every weekend or every other weekend for a few hours. My parents would drop me off and pick me up. Again, at the time, I don't realize this, but that was such a rare and precious opportunity in my formative years to have that kind of exposure. A lot of my friends who still till this day cannot get over the hump. Of accepting English as a second language instead of as a foreign language, that's a huge mental difference. If you accept it as your second language, then that's something you are bound to use as going to eventually become part of you. Then the way your your brain processes information, your motivation, everything is going to be different from the point that you make the decision of choosing a certain language to be your second language. But if you always see it as a Foreign language. There is always going to be a uncrossable barrier between you and that language, and you always have the excuse of, "Oh, this is just not. This is not me. This is not what I grew up with. This is not my country. This is not my language. This is not my culture." So it's only reasonable that I don't understand it. That's where my friends are still at two decades later. They still have that mental block, and they will still complain to me that they can't. Why isn't my English as good as yours? I mean. Yeah, I can't really come sit down and explain it to you, but I don't think you're gonna like it. And I was occasionally see my friends in the group chat discussing. Oh, I signed up for this class to pick up my language because one of my friends actually had basic French skills. Like that's great. I could never do that. And then she just fucking wasted it. She never used it. Ah,、oh, maddening. See that was like,、oh, it's, it's your money. It's your time. If you want to waste it, I'm not gonna say anything.、I'm, I've learned my lessons. So yeah, he's not obviously he doesn't carry the title, but I learned so much from him. And similar, I guess I really gotta thank my aunt, because both this English teacher and my art teacher were introduced by my aunt. Because you know she grew up in a family of bureaucrats basically, and they're all boring as shit. And she was the free spirit one. 
albeit, you know, behind her back, everybody will call her the ir- irresponsible one. But she had brought all these interesting people into my life. Damn, I never really thought about it that way. Well, it's still going to be a while until I see her. And I don't want to express this kind of thing. It kind of cheapens it over social media. But next time I see her, I'll make sure she knows. So time travel back to high school. And when my homeroom teacher regretfully informed my parents that I don't have the potential to achieve scholastic excellence. Their words, not mine. Um, My family finally caved and sent me to meet with this artist. And we went to chat, really did hit it off. And um, they were such incredibly kind and open-minded people, which is so rare. It was just a cutthroat, fierce competition everywhere. There is no, got my land, got my truck, and get my dog, and get my cold beer. I'm just gonna be happy with my life. There is none of that. If you ever dare thinking you can take a fucking breath, you're done. Your market will be cornered. Your business will be overtaken. And my dad being in business, you know, meeting his friends, just kind of receiving information in passing, even though I didn't, I don't really pay any mind to it. You still kind of just hear things. And then to meet this artist and his incredible family, it's like I went through a portal and went into a different world. I'm trying to think our routine. So I would go there sometimes after school. Sometimes my dad would even pull me out of school if we have a free period. Um, or sometimes, yeah, most of the time it's after school because I remember going there at night a lot. And during the weekend, I might go earlier in the day and just spend the whole day there. And his family, you know, they're fairly well off. And they, I think at that point, he was the third or fourth generation of an entire family of artists. So they have, they're very well established. They have, they're very well connected. So when they produce art, there are people there to purchase it. They're not struggling artists anymore. If I go there to hang out for a whole day, I'll get there. We'll draw for maybe two, three hours, taking breaks here and there. And then they have help around the family to cook and everything. And then they would feed us and include us in conversations, show us music, actually having a conversation with us. And I met some nice kids there too, like very funny, sarcastic, artistic kids. Just all in all, a really good time. And then I was there to draw, you know, which was what I wanted to do till that point for, I don't know, maybe 10 years that I have been forbidden to, forbidden to do. And I can, I can finally really devote my time to this thing. And that was, that was great. And then when the time comes for me to apply for college, at first, I was going to go to Beijing and go to this um, Central Academy of Art or apply to try to apply for the Central Academy of Art. And there are actually tests you have to pass as an art student. The way they would do it is, imagine this, an assembly hall filled seat to seat with kids thousands of them the bell rings you're given a theme and you have to basically do a realistic rendering either in sketching or painting of that scene and then they will mark how good you are and if you pass you pass if you fail you fail so it doesn't matter how much you've practiced or you know you know it's, it's one of those things that's kind of goes against the principles of art that how they've standardized everything that's how they judge future artists 
But no, that was just how it was done. So um, and then to be able to pass that test, you have to really do like a three to six months really focused training camp. It's like it's like a boxer. You got to go to a training camp, make sure you're ready for this fight. So I went to Beijing and then stayed at his cousin's house. Again, they're all artists. I was there for half a year. And at some point during that visit, they have managed to convince my father to send me abroad instead of going there, which again is a huge turning point. At the time, I honestly don't recognize the significance of any of this. I was obviously happy because I'm finally getting the fuck out of there. Nobody can tell me what to do. So that was very exciting. But I, I remember before the teachers have brought it to my parents' attention, I actually had a discussion with my dad because somebody I know I got the news that they were preparing to go to Australia for college. And I was just asking my dad whether that could ever be an option for me. And remembering my dad was extremely furious with me and telling me, basically, I mean, again, didn't understand it at the time. Looking back, I totally get it. I have consistently failed him. So at that point, he really just does not have faith to further invest in me doing anything. And this was before my art teacher kind of told him that I have any kind of promise, any kind of future in pursuing art. I remember we had a huge fight. I didn't talk to him for maybe a week. I thought that was it for me. Just I was never going to go anywhere outside of that city. And then all that changed. I was able to live in Linden for almost six years. It was fucking magical. I don't know how that happened. I obviously didn't really put in any effort. It's all just people coming into my lives and saying the right things, seeing my potential, or willing to give me the benefit of the doubt at the right time. That really pivoted my life trajectory. Because I could see myself. I, could, I know exactly what would have happened if I never left. I would have went to some kind of college because they can get me in somewhere and I would have gotten some kind of job and I would have gotten married probably before I was 25, which is like the dividing line. If you're not married past 25, people are starting to call you leftovers and uh, what was the other English word for it? Yo, spinster, right? Um, I would have kids earlier like my mom did and um, I don't know. I would be a completely different person. I wouldn't be speaking English as a second language. I wouldn't be trying to start my own business. I wouldn't be caring about education or in any issues I see in the world or in my surroundings as much as I do. And actually possessing any kind of skill or capability to contribute to the resolution of anything in any way. Because at that point, I truly, I had no skill. I was extremely spoiled. I was really righteous. I thought, I, I've, I've always thought I was smarter than everybody else. I'm sorry, but that's just how I see myself. That's what I was told, you know. People assumed I should be smarter than everybody else because I ate a lot more meat than anybody they've ever witnessed. <laughs> so they're like, you consume so much protein, you better be fucking smart. And, uh... That takes us to college. We went through the whole application process. I sent in a whole box, like a moving box full of my artwork, sketches, paintings, sketchbooks, and, you know. And uh, right before, three months 
before I was I was supposed to leave for London, my dad passed away because he had a stroke and then led to complications. And then because he's a very lifelong smoker, chain, chain smoker, he had really bad lung infections. And um, I think he was in the ICU for a full, all, close to two months, maybe 45 days, something like that. And then he passed away. And that's when the real dynamic of the family between his family members and my mother start to show its true color, to me at least for the first time. My mom being in the middle of it, she's always felt that the family had never trusted her. They've always felt that my mom was the gold digger, basically, completely forgetting when my mom married their son, he was nothing. He had zero. Like when they got married, my mom's family was way better off than the other side. It was traumatic for my mother. On top of having to deal with the stress of her husband's impending demise, I remember, again, this was revealed to me later. There was one night, my mom sent me home because she didn't want me spending overnight in the hospital because you can't be in ICU. There's nowhere for families to stay. She was sleeping on the bench, cold as shit. There was no heating in the hall. She was sleeping on the bench right outside the ICU. Um, she sent me home, and my father's parents kind of volunteered to take, look after me for the night. So we went to the apartment that we were staying at the time. That was like part of my mom's benefit from work. So we were in the apartment. I, being the teenager that I was, I went home. I had my dinner. And so I just turned on the computer and started playing games. Because in my mind, I honestly didn't expect my dad to die. And at that point, I haven't seen him post-op for maybe a month. I never had to worry about anything. So worrying about whether my father was going to live was not really anywhere on the map in my brain. I remember myself thinking, ugh, when is this thing going to be over? And by over, I mean, when is he going to get better? Come on, old man. And then the next night, either my mom or my uncle, her, her younger brother, home with me, and they noticed that some things had been rummaged through. Their safe had been opened. It's not like there was a break-in, but it's very obvious that somebody has went through their shit. And my mom realized the reason that my father's parents wanted to come home with me was because they know that the, the debit card, whatever, that holds the money for me to go to college, it's somewhere in the house. That's what they think. So they basically went to the house trying to find that so that they can extract the funds one way or another. But they didn't find it. And that was because it was in my room. Because my dad, don't know how he knew it, he transferred all the money under my name and he gave the card to me. So they didn't find it. But my mom knew that they were looking for shit. And that's when she knew that things were going to get ugly very soon. And it did. The day, maybe two hours after we cremated my dad and put him in the mausoleum, um... The, that's when the family wasn't a family anymore. And um, I'll bore you with that next time. Hope you guys have a nice week. That's what he said. <laughs>